SpexCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. My name is Phil, and I'll be your host for the next hour, alongside our good friends TJ. Hello. And Augie. Good to be here. If this is your first time listening to SpexCast, thanks for listening. We're a group of students belonging to a student faculty research organization called RIT Space Exploration at the Rochester Institute of Technology, or in Augie's case, alumni. Yes. Uh, you can learn more about Specs and SpexCast at our website, specs.rit.edu. Today's main topic is the recent SpaceX announcement of a privately funded manned lunar flyby in 2018. But first, let's talk about a few news items that came up this week, and we're recording this on March 5th, 2017. So TJ, what is the first bit of news that came up out of this busy news week? Yeah, so the first bit of news is the Boeing proposal for a V-band satellite constellation. Uh, that was due March 1st. Uh, and so the FCC actually, um, I guess, sent out a request for proposals from other potential users. And so we had 11 uh, companies submit um, V-band communication satellite constellation proposals on Wednesday. So uh, the V-band is a part of the RF spectrum for uh, communications. Is, are those special communications in the V-band? What else typically happens in that band of the spectrum? So V-band is not commonly used for communication satellites. Um, my understanding is that it actually gets uh, some weather interference. So most of your uh, geostationary satellites use uh, KA or KU bands to send data. And so this was opened up so Boeing wouldn't have exclusive rights. So they, FCC allowed other companies to kind of compete for this? Uh, in a sense, uh, Boeing was the company that had the idea to, to do this con constellation. And the, the FCC, if there's no other like willing operators, uh, is willing to grant Boeing basically exclusive access to the spectrum that it wants. If there's other companies that want to use that band, then the FCC will say, okay, well, if we're going to have two or 10 different users, there's going to be, you know, certain rules to make sure they don't interfere with each other and kind of a high level organization to make sure that all the people who want and can use the band are able to actually do that. Are there other companies that want to use the V-band? Yes, so there are five other companies that also submitted plans, uh, one of them being SpaceX, then OneWeb, Telsat, O3B Networks, and Thea Holdings. Uh, now, the least surprising of these two are SpaceX and OneWeb, who had originally announced low Earth orbit uh, communication constellations, uh, although those had been in the KA and KU band. So even though they're in different bands of the spectrum, they can still apply to this request? So what's interesting is that this is not retroactively applying to their existing constellation ideas. These are actually brand new constellations. For instance, SpaceX, we covered this uh, earlier last year, had a proposal for 4,000 low Earth orbit satellites. And so these would be uh, at multiple latitudes and orbits, and they would allow for high speed, low latency uh, satellite internet. The current satellite internet is using geostationary satellites, which means you don't need that many satellites as they are fixed in location. They can cover a large area, but you have 35,000 miles between the user and the satellite. And that's a round trip of around 500 milliseconds 
and latency, which means you can you can't do real time communication. You can't do what we're doing now with you know real time video chat, but you can do web pages and streaming video and stuff. So there, SpaceX and OneWeb, OneWeb was the original company who had this concept, was to bring it down dramatically down to roughly a thousand kilometers, which means your latency is now less than a hundred milliseconds, which means you can do those real time applications again. Uh, but because you're so much closer, you need a ton more satellites. And also because you're no longer a fixed point in the sky, you need to have the ground station antennas be able to track these fast moving satellites. So it's a big leap in technology and scale uh, on the back end on the these orbiting satellites, but also on the user side of using uh, actively scanned radio arrays and things like that. Right. In addition to the the first four thousand or so satellite constellation that SpaceX proposed in this filing for the FCC, they also included a bit about V Leo constellation um, comprising of seventy five hundred additional satellites. Yeah. So this is the big news. Uh, is this very low Earth orbit or V-band low Earth orbit constellation. So in addition to the 4,000 satellites at 1,000, roughly 1,000 kilometers, SpaceX is saying that they want to launch over 7,000 more of those, and those would be at roughly 350 kilometers. Which is lower than the space station. Yeah, so lower than the space station, uh, and there's a lot of challenges with that, and because you're even closer to the Earth, you need even more satellites to have consistent coverage uh, 24-7 around the whole Earth. Uh, and so that brings the total for this combined SpaceX Internet constellation to almost 12,000 satellites. SpaceX does have um, some space in Seattle, Washington, or Redmond, Washington, to develop their satellites. We haven't seen any hardware from them yet. We know they're developing the satellite constellation and have heard bits and pieces and some press conferences from Gwen Shotwell saying, yes, we're developing it. But most of the stuff we know is out of these FCC, what do you call them, proposals? There's FCC applications, and then those applications for frequency have technical documents that actually describe the constellation itself. So number of satellites, what orbits they're in. They even have like reentry information of how many parts are they going to break up into and whether that's going to be a concern. Uh, what kind of transponders they have, et cetera, et cetera. Right, so there's a lot of technical detail that we know because um, these FCC documents have been available for the public. But SpaceX hasn't really shown us um, in the what they plan to do in the same way that they've shown us things about Red Dragon, about ITS even, which in my mind seem kind of further away. Um, having a satellite constellation like this and providing internet to people that currently can't get it easily is a huge moneymaker for them, not only for the casual user, but also trading um, low latency internet is, um, you know, very valuable to them. And this is the type of thing that could fund those greater missions. And we haven't seen anything officially. Yeah, I think the, the reason for that probably is because uh, one, it's it's so much sooner on their time frame between getting to Mars and in building this constellation, and also because it's a very competitive space. No one out there is saying they want to go colonize Mars and are going to invest billions of dollars to it if they had billions of dollars, except for basically SpaceX and NASA. There's really no competition on that front. And so I think for the reason they're doing this is probably to keep it 
close to heart because there's so much demand for this, um, basically this this frequency network, and also because they don't want their competitors to all jump onto this idea once they come up with something. And that brings up the question: Do you think they actually have the pl the um, intent to put this many satellites and and use the V band, or do you think this is just a placeholder? I'm wondering that too. Yeah, TJ, what do you think? The big question that gets brought up is that Boeing had this application for v-band satellites and that forced any companies who are thinking about doing this to submit a proposal now spacex and other companies could have put in kind of a throwaway application of you know this is what we're going to think about doing uh this is potential use cases but what we saw out of spacex is a very um thoroughly thought out and thoroughly designed proposal uh, and they talk extensively about using these 7,000 additional satellites with the existing network uh, and how basically the primary advantage is that a single transponder on one of these uh, KA band 1,000 kilometer uh, orbit satellites can cover roughly like a 4.5 million square kilometer uh, bubble basically, on the on Earth. And so that can cover, like, the Northeast, right, with one satellite. Or you can do the South, like, the Southwest, like, California kind of region with one satellite. But obviously on the coasts uh, and around the world, you have incredibly dense spots with a ton of people. And so by having these smaller satellites with a much tighter circle, you can actually have multiple of these small satellites covering the different parts of that region as well as that kind of overarching bubble with different bands, which means you can now have multiple satellites servicing, you know, Boston versus New York City versus Washington, D.C. And then that higher satellite can cover the people living out in the countryside, right? All within that mm -hmm. one region. Uh, and everyone can get high speed. Does competing in this space and having these documents, technical documents ready in this far imply that we'll see some of this hardware soon. How, what's the general time frame on these FCC applications? So we have no clue what the timeline is for SpaceX. So we originally had this announcement in 2015 uh, and we have had very little official news from SpaceX regarding that. Obviously they have a prototype factory in some regards in Washington DC. They have a networking design lab in Irvine, California. And they have a ton of job postings opened for satellite design and satellite technology. But we haven't seen anything. There's been official announcements. Most of the information we got was from these kind of technical uh, documents that they have to file publicly with the government. Uh, and they don't specify timelines in those documents? Uh, not, uh, not generally on the big constellations. Now, we do have, uh, there was FCC applications for two test satellites. Uh, so that it looks like that two test articles that have the same kind of hardware, the optical communication link and the transponders would fly in 2017. And so that would be the kind of like prototype version. Not It's not obviously the constellation, but it'd be prototypes of these satellites. So theoretically, those are going to fly relatively soon within the next year or so. So uh, before we move on to... Gray Dragon. Let's talk a little bit about Red Dragon. So we did mention that Red Dragon had been delayed to 2020, um, pushed back from the original target of 2018, which I'll, we 
speculated would allow NASA to more development time to include their own payloads on Red Dragon. And now, today, um, we have seen an actual RFI, which is a request for information for payloads to go on privately owned missions to Mars, uh, aka SpaceX. They don't name SpaceX specifically, but that's the only private company going there. Um, so they're calling on people to work with NASA to send hardware, send experiments, partnered with NASA and things like that um, on that mission. We nailed that one. We called that one. Yeah, I think most people probably called that one. The delay. Yeah. <laughs> and hey. it's actually... Hey, let me feel special. We have a unique history in that Augie was at the SmallSat conference. And I think you either reported or asked the question talking about uh, NASA payloads flying on Red Dragon. Is that correct? Uh, I reported on it. I did not ask that question. Yeah, so we were one of the sources that talked about NASA not being able to get on the 2018 Red Dragon mission. Uh, but because of that two-year extension, NASA is now able to hopefully have some hardware on Red Dragon. Yeah, I think it makes sense on all fronts. Like, I think even if, you know, even with NASA saying they couldn't make that deadline, they couldn't come up with a payload for it, I don't think SpaceX would have canceled if they also didn't need the time for themselves to prepare Red Dragon. I mean, they kind of have a lot to focus on in the next year or so. And, you know, they've replaced it with Grey Dragon, which we're going to talk about next. But the cool thing about Grey Dragon is is it's essentially um, going to the moon, so they don't need to worry so much about, you know, these tight windows on timelines. Yeah, so SpaceX surprised uh, pretty much everyone in the space industry on Monday with a surprise announcement of what we're going to call Grey Dragon, which is a manned uh, lunar mission using Dragon 2 and Falcon Heavy to send two non-NASA uh, individuals, private citizens, private citizens, citizens. Yep. around the moon on a free return trajectory and return them to Earth in 2018, at the end of 2018. And so Elon Musk had a private uh, media-only uh, conference call and we've gotten, you know, bits and pieces of data from that. Uh, but it was really kind of a, a shock to the greater community because SpaceX has been kind of unequivocally Mars first uh, through kind of all of their media and messaging. And at first glance, a lunar ambition can seem kind of like a distraction. But I think... And, well, this would be, and this would be tourism, which SpaceX has, you know, stayed away from focusing more on the commercial launches and sending things to Mars science there's that's commercial too getting cargo to mars this is tourism so it kind of contradicts what we would say is their mission and two levels yeah so i i just want to kind of break this announcement down and see you know as we dig deeper into what this actually means for spacex and the broader space industry uh what this will actually represent and what kind of what this can lead to in the future so how does a gray dragon mission fit into spacex's overall manifest um, and how does it align with crew dragon and falcon heavy launch rates and first flights so they're already spacex is already backed up quite a bit we've spoken about that in the past and falcon heavy and crew dragon are still in the development cycle and have yet to launch but we expect those to happen soon with a gray dragon mission where does that fit in the overall launch schedule yeah. so i think the most likely explanation for this mission as is as a drop-in replacement for red dragon for the Red Dragon that was delayed? Yeah, so... I would agree with that. 
Yeah, so if you look at Red Dragon as, you know, launching the summer of 2018 and you have a six-month delay due to AMO 6, that punts Red Dragon earliest into the end of 2018, early 2019. Well, wait, let's let's talk about the timing real quick. Because it's, it's interesting that they're targeting the end of December 2018. It doesn't only make sense from the perspective that AMOS 6 delayed them six months, so basically Red Dragon becomes delayed six months, but it also makes sense because it's the 50th anniversary of Apollo 8, which is the first oh, ever wow. time uh, anyone has orbited, any human has orbited the moon. And that was launched on December 21st, 1968. So if they were to do something, even if it wasn't the exact day, but within a month or so around the same time frame, then I think they'd get huge publicity just from the ability that we're able to return to the moon finally after 50 years. Yeah, that's a, I, I do think Great that's point. a big uh, contributing factor to that. Um, as for a launch rate, um, theoretically, Crew Dragon is supposed to fly unmanned uh, November of this year and then to do its first manned flight in May of 2018. Also, Falcon Heavy is supposed to have its first flight uh, the summer of 2017 uh, and then fly at least one or two more times before this mission. So while standing here at the beginning of 2017, all of this hardware is theoretical. By the time that crew are supposed to be getting on a Dragon 2 to go to the moon, all of those components would have flown at least once or twice. Probably more than that. I, th I think at least from the perspective of like Falcon 9 and you look at Crew Dragon, um, NASA or, uh, NASA's requiring SpaceX to go through a lot of things in order to get Crew Dragon ready for humans. And so they're going to be doing a lot of testing, especially over the course of 2017, before they put humans on, on that, basically in the Dragon capsule. So I think it'll be a pretty well-flown piece of hardware. The only thing that I would question is whether or not Falcon Heavy will be, you know, how many flights that will have before this timeline. The other question, too, is uh, whether or not they're going to try and refurb it, if it's even possible to put them in a lunar orbit with uh, basically landing. I'm sure they'll land the side boosters, but will they land the main booster? Um, have you seen anyone do the math on that yet, TJ? Do you think that's even possible? So what is really interesting is we don't know the official price tag for this mission, uh, but it's kind of been like hinted at, maybe rumored. Uh, that it could be around $300 million, so $150 million uh, per ride, uh, which is, you know, much, much greater than what SpaceX is charging for a ISS mission. But as for going to the moon, uh, it's kind of a priceless experience. It also uh, requires Falcon Heavy. It requires, I mean, we'll go into the engineering work after this, but there are some things that they need to do in order to be ready for this. Yes, and so if you go on the, the SpaceX website where they talk about the Falcon Heavy payload, uh, it has enough uh, payload capacity in expendable mode to send a Dragon around the moon. And we'll talk about like uh, how far it actually will go in a little bit. Uh, but that is in expendable mode. And so the $90 million price tag for Falcon Heavy is if you can recover all three cores, either all on land or two at on land and one on a barge. If you have to expend all three, suddenly it's a much more expensive mission. Now I think uh, something that's most likely going to be guaranteed is they're going to reuse a Dragon 2 as this for this capsule. Uh, they're going to have uh, at you least... You mean send, send this as send this gray dragon as a reused capsule it will, or it'll, reuse the gray dragon capsule? Uh, the capsule that will fly for a gray dragon will have already flown. 
because uh, NASA, for all of its crew missions, is requesting a brand new capsule. And so they will have at least two uh, recovered capsules, uh, at least, uh, potentially three, to which to refurbish and refly. And that dramatically reduces the cost. So do you think that is not only a cost factor, also a demonstration for them, a technical demonstration, but since these are private citizens and this is kind of a, a private deal with SpaceX that they're negotiating their own terms, NASA has all these requirements. Have these private citizens may not. Do you think that's like a, an added benefit for SpaceX as a company saying, well, you know, if you guys trust us and we're doing our job right, is it okay if, you know, we, we knock 50 million off or 80 million or some amount of money and then you get to use a reuse dragon? That kind of thing, Phil? Is that what you're asking? Well, like the, the private citizens may not care as much as NASA might. I guess, in, in using a brand new capsule versus a reused one. I know personally, if I had the money to go around the moon, I would want, I would be have enough money to pay extra to have a new one. Right, that, that's what I wonder too, is I think the private citizens, they're obviously super, super wealthy, and they reached out to SpaceX about this. So before they did that, they probably didn't know the cost. I mean, I'm sure they didn't. We don't have any idea what the cost was. We can just kind of roughly guess. And so when they reached out, they probably said, hey, look, we would love to fly around the moon. Is this something that SpaceX can do for us? How much money do we have to give you for you to take us there? And SpaceX probably went back and forth with a proposal for a while. And I, and I questioned whether or not it was really about um, them cutting a little bit of money so that they can fly on a reused capsule. I think more likely it would be that SpaceX wanted to use this as an opportunity to do a technical demonstration of a reused capsule. Right, but I mean, wouldn't somebody that would be going around the moon and hasn't, you know, has enough money and is presumably important enough to have that much money to do a mission like that, wouldn't they want the security of a new capsule? Exactly. That's why I question it. That's why I question it. SpaceX has to build all those capsules too, and they could be bottlenecked in the supply chain on Dragon capsules, and they have the extra ones, and, and maybe that's part of the proposal here, is they're going to use reused stuff in order to do this. Like with the private citizens instead of NASA astronauts, I don't think SpaceX is going to dramatically jump away from what would be considered NASA qualifications for components. Uh, and honestly, I don't think it's a, f a fair assessment to say, well, it's safer to go with a brand new capsule, right? Uh, you can make a, a strong argument that a reused or refurbished uh, capsule has been flight proven. Uh, and we'll see that with the upcoming SES-10 mission that reflies a reused booster. Now, I definitely think that with the going with a reused, partially at least reused capsule, uh, definitely ties into the fact that uh, there's definitely going to be a price decrease, uh, and also that Dragon production is kind of bottlenecked. Uh, we saw that with upcoming CRS missions, they're going to be reusing the pressure vessels from previous CRS missions, and that the Dragon 1 kind of production line has been shut down and been shifted over to Dragon 2. Also, SpaceX has moved Dragon production out of their main factory into its own buildings uh, to kind of like speed that up. And so we can see SpaceX trying to like work on uh, Dragon production because one thing that is not readily apparent is that Dragon itself is as complex, if not more complex, than Falcon in its entirety. And if you look at the cost, a new Dragon capsule is as expensive as a new Falcon rocket in a lot of respects. 
which is you don't really get that based on a pure like size comparison of the two vehicles. Um, before we kind of move on into more engineering and technical discussion, I kind of want to, you know, gauge your own personal speculations on who this could be. Not only who could afford it, but who would want to go fly by the moon. Um, one idea that I had just while we were talking about this is like Buzz Aldrin um, has walked on the moon before and he has been a very outspoken um, supporter of interplanetary missions, um, not only with private companies like SpaceX, but also international partners. Um, recently, he just tweeted his support for um, the UAE, uh, the United Arab Emirates um, plans to send things to Mars and, and have their own Mars architecture. Do you think that this could not be one extremely wealthy person, but one person who has gained financial support from one or many partners that are funding his trip, like Buzz Aldrin, getting a lot of money from outside people, paying for a seat on a dragon to the moon? I think that that could very well happen, but I doubt it would be Buzz Aldrin, just because he's already 87 years old. Good point. And uh, I, I recently saw some photos of him on Twitter, like exploring Antarctica, and he was like, he went to like the South Pole or something as well. So he's still out there exploring, but I just question just with his age he will be in two years he'll be 89 years old that's that's fairly old and fairly risky for spacex to put someone on their their first moon lunar capsule right in a kind of follow-up bit from the announcement uh, elon had said that this was not the first time individuals and groups had come to spacex asking for him uh, asking for this kind of mission but this was the first uh pair that had been accepted um so we don't have enough information to kind of speculate on like why that might have been uh but it, with this you know the expected price for this kind of mission it, it really goes down to they're definitely billionaires right to have that kind of disposable income on a or like phil said it's one billionaire backing either two people or probably himself along with some other public figure potentially yeah as well um my uh, personal bet on who it is is uh, Steve Jurvitson, uh, who is a billionaire who's invested in uh, SpaceX, uh, who is also a huge Apollo 8 fanatic, uh, who has a ton of Apollo 8 uh, memorabilia. He's actually on the board of SpaceX. Yeah, he's, he's a popular name in, in Silicon Valley, but I, really, I think he's just a big um, venture capitalist. And, and, I, and I think, you know, I was initially going to say, had I answered that question first, Probably James Cameron, because um, he's wealthy enough and he's you know gone to the Mar Mar Mariner Trench, the deepest point in the ocean. So he obviously loves exploring. Um, but now that TJ brought up Steve Jurvetson, I'm actually in agreement that it, it could totally probably be him. I did hear a clip on NPR where they asked who it could be, and Elon responded with, "Not anybody from Hollywood." Uh, so I guess that does narrow it down a little bit. <laughs> yeah, that gets rid of James Cameron. Yeah. yeah. Now, it's going to be interesting. We're going to find out, you know, probably within the next six months who these people are because they're going to be, like, going to SpaceX for training, training yeah. and whatnot. Yeah. Well, I bet we can narrow it down further, too, because SpaceX has obviously had a, a big choice in this because, like they said, other groups and people have reached out to them before. So I suspect the person that they picked was probably either American or American-affiliated, and it wasn't somebody that was in the United Arab Emirates or some wealthy prince somewhere. 
um, just because I think that that would create a lot of bad PR for SpaceX that they probably wouldn't want at this time when they're kind of literally going head to head with SLS since SLS's first mission is designed to do something very, very similar. Yeah. Beautiful segue. Beautiful segue. Let's talk about SLS, Orion, um, EM2, and is a planned mission to take Orion around the moon. Uh, we did talk about that before, about taking crew um, on a flyby mission and, and things like that. But this kind of seems directly uh, like a direct competitor almost to that mission, sending a, a capsule around the moon that... This Dragon wasn't initially designed to do this, right? I mean, it's capable, certainly, but its main goal is to take people to the ISS. Well, according to Elon, Dragon was designed to land anywhere on the surface of any planetary body in the solar system. So if you look at it from that perspective... But its main use case is to take people right. to the ISS, not to right. do anything, although, you know, it has certain features built in for that. Orion is designed to take humans outside of low-Earth orbit... Um, and right now, its main use is to fly people around the moon and eventually dock with some habitation module or something to get to Mars. But it's only mission that's hard and has stuff planned out. As we've spoken about this lots of times before, is to go around the moon. And now, since that's being delayed and late and can't go to the ISS and all these other, you know, it, it seems like it's in turmoil right now. And then SpaceX just comes in and says... Let's go around the moon. Let's do exactly what Orion wanted to do. Yeah, so we talked last episode about uh, potential for the EM-1 mission to carry crew and to move that timeline up from 2021 to from either 2021 or 2023 to someplace like 2019 with humans being on the first SLS mission. Um, to kind of make a distinction, uh, Orion and Dragon are very similar uh, from an external view, uh, Orion does have a service module, which is a key distinction in that it has its own propulsion system and it has roughly a thousand meters per second of delta V uh, built into the vehicle. Dragon does have a propulsion system, but not dealt, it's not designed for space. It's designed for propulsive landing and abort. So it wouldn't be able to fire its Super Dracos in space and make like a maneuver. Yeah, exactly. Burn. So Dragon, Dragon 2 has about 400 uh, meters per second of Delta V with the Super Dracos. Orion, with its service module, has a th over 1,000. What that means is that launched on SLS or any heavy lift rocket on a trajectory towards the moon, Orion can actually do an insertion burn, enter lunar orbit, stay for an extended period, roughly a week or so, around the moon, and then do another burn to come back. With Dragon, with the Grey Dragon mission, it would be a free return, so it would have a long orbit around the moon and come back. And so those are very different mission profiles, and obviously... Well, I think in the public eye, the public wouldn't care about that. Exactly. I think if you say, we're going to go orbit the moon, they don't care how, how close you get to the moon. It's kind of like pennies. It'll be the person, the, the, the organization that gets the most PR from it is going to be the organization that does it first. Exactly. So... Or while Orion allows for orbital moon missions, SpaceX is looking like it can have people go to the moon, fly by the moon, take great lot of great pictures, etc., uh, and then come back much, much quicker and for much, much less cost. And that is a big kind of threat towards SLS. Uh, Let's talk about uh, some of Orion's advantages. You did mention service module can enter an orbit. Um, but it also has more pressurized volume, so you could take 
more supplies and, and things inside the, the pressure vessel of the capsule itself, right? And Dragon? Yeah, so so they're both designed for a maximum of seven people, uh, but Orion is uh, a bigger capsule. It's a wider capsule as well. Uh, and it is designed for up to three weeks of consumables. And so you can have more food, more creature comforts, more space. And uh, SpaceX is flying you know, two people in a seven-person capsule, and we don't know if it can actually fly, you know, say four people or even seven people for the duration of a lunar mission. Like we just, we just don't know. We don't have the, the data for that. Yeah. I highly doubt they could send seven people there or that they would even want for, to. For an extended period of time, but two people, sure. But still that's kind of a small space to move around for either, in either case. But you're going to the moon. <laughs> yeah, that's. I would sit in a minivan for a week to do that. Yeah. That's <laughs> always the key is, you know, the desire to go to the moon uh, can outweigh some discomfort. And if you look at Mercury and Gemini and how tiny those capsules were, and with Gemini, we did long-duration crew missions in Gemini in what is basically like a sports cube, where you're sitting right next to a fellow astronaut and you got a roof about six inches above your head, and that's it. Uh, and the only time you have space to uh, stretch your legs is when you actually open the entire capsule to space and do a spacewalk. <laughs> Um, but going back to Orion, uh, the real kind of scenario that I like, I like to discuss is if SpaceX keep its timeline and NASA keeps its timeline and crew dragon, gray dragon flies at the end of 2018 and NASA does not move crew to EM one, that means there is a three to five year period where SpaceX has sent humans back to the moon, around the moon, and NASA is has not yet done that. And or alternatively, it's three to five years where SpaceX can still launch to the moon before NASA does. Yeah, and if there's follow-up Grey Dragon missions, which could be a possibility, or this one could get delayed. Yes, um, you have SpaceX in the mind of the American public as the company that is sending people to the moon uh and that nasa is not um and so like last episode we talked about you know would sls get canceled uh i think under a three or five year public perception assault which is what this kind of ends up being the possibility becomes a lot greater in that regard uh because if sls gets there's potential for delays in the crew dragon timeline in gray dragon and in EM1, if there's a delay in EM1 that pushes it to 2019 uh, and the SLS first flight happens after this Great Dragon mission, then you're going to have more pressure on the SLS team as well. Uh, but those are like worst case scenarios for NASA, right? Um, the real, I think the biggest issue, um, not issue, but the biggest uh, challenge within the next three years, five years is that SpaceX has three monumental projects uh, to work on and they need to start showing progress and not only hitting their milestones, but increasing rate of hitting milestones, um, which I think is critical because you can set as many fantastic goalposts for yourself uh, over and over, um, but they need to start actually getting past those. So one thing I'd like to just clear up uh, for everybody um, is it should be clear that it's not SpaceX versus NASA. 
This is not some battle between these two different agencies, because if SpaceX succeeds, NASA succeeds. And NASA will look good as a result of that, because the biggest reason SpaceX has been able to survive is because of these um, commercial crew contracts and these CRS supply missions that have really taken SpaceX off the ground and, and made it able to hit these crazy timelines. Otherwise, they'd probably be in a 50-year development period because it just takes so long and so much money to do this kind of work. Now, as a counter-argument to that, I want to talk about a Ars Technica uh, article uh, by Eric Berger titled, If You Think NASA Is Frustrated With SpaceX, You're Probably Right. Now, Eric Berger has some sources uh, inside NASA that he talks about, like the, the kind of sentiment that NASA's feeling, uh, which is sort of negative towards this announcement. Uh, but I want to talk about his conclusion that he had uh, is that NASA has kind of been a saving angel to SpaceX. The original uh, commercial cargo uh, development contract is what allowed SpaceX to progress past Falcon 1, develop Falcon 9, develop Cargo Dragon, and now uh, the Commercial Crew Development Program and the Commercial Crew Services Program is what's developing Dragon 2. So there's a great argument to said that, you know, Crew Dragon would not exist if it wasn't for NASA's funding and support. Uh, now his conclusion is that NASA is kind of upset that SpaceX is kind of up sh upstaging them, uh, upstaging SLS missions by sending these people to the moon and not focusing on the contract that they signed up for, which is to deliver people to the ISS. Uh, but I disagree, um, mainly because if you actually look at the timeline, uh, in order for Grey Dragon to happen at all, SpaceX has to finish the commercial crew development program, so qualify Crew Dragon to fly astronauts, and probably fly... Not only the two test astronauts, but an actual crew of four to the ISS before Grey Dragon. So that is a huge motivation to fulfill their contract on time in order to be able to do Grey Dragon. Also, uh, looking at uh, the actual contract that is part of commercial crew development, uh, there is actually articles that talk about one of the secondary reasons for these contracts is to develop commercial capability that can be used for commercial purposes. And so while NASA is saving a ton of money by going with commercial partners instead of Russia, they also are spurring the development of commercial capability both with Boeing and SpaceX to then serve commercial interests like Bigelow's uh, uh, space hotels or these paying tourists for lunar missions. Uh, so I would argue that this is actually exactly how this commercial crew contract was designed to, to play out. Definitely. Oh, totally. They should be excited that other companies other than NASA are going to give SpaceX money to develop these new capabilities. They should be excited about that. And I think probably the people that are upset at NASA are mainly people that worked directly with EM2 or with Orion or some kind of more narrow-sighted vision on it. Yes. I think another um, key thing... Uh, is that NASA is not a monolithic entity. It is built around NASA centers that are geographically and ideologically diverse. Uh, and so certain uh, centers have uh, scientific agendas that would align with what SpaceX is doing, and some of them have agendas that are kind of relying on SLS that don't align with what SpaceX is doing. Uh, so it's not easy to say that 
all of NASA is pro SpaceX or all of NASA is anti SpaceX uh, because different large groups within NASA can have varying opinions. But it does, uh, you know, tie in with the administration. There's still an overarching NASA administration that, and, and also the White House that works with them. And so it makes you wonder, like, maybe this is a good segue where we can start to talk about some of the things that Blue Origin's been doing and, and all these lunar missions that have come out that are seeming like there's just been this, this big push lately to go after the moon. And um, maybe we can talk about some of those, those new things that came out this week. Uh, this week was actually uh, filled with some big space announcements. Uh, one of those being what is being called Blue Moon. So the Washington Post had an exclusive scoop uh, titled An Exclusive Look at Jeff Bezos' Plan to Set Up an Amazon-Like Delivery for Future Human Settlements of the Moon. Uh, and the key bit of information here is a seven-page white paper uh, written by Jeff Bezos that was delivered to NASA and President Trump uh, leadership team, transition team, uh, in the beginning of January. Um, and that post goes into all the different aspects of the seven-page paper. But one of the key uh, things is obviously a focus on missions to the moon and the request for a commercial development contract like commercial cargo and commercial crew for deliver for creating the the capability to deliver cargo to the moon uh, and their vehicle would be something based on new shepherd that would be able to deliver 10,000 pounds of cargo to the moon at relatively low cost at a high flight rate yeah in addition to that uh, delivering cargo to the moon um, bigelow uh, aerospace which is responsible for the beam module that was installed on the ISS last year. Um, it's basically inflatable habitation space. Yeah, Bigelow is working with ULA um, with their ACES program uh, to perhaps put their B330 module around um, the moon in lunar orbit and uh, perhaps within 75 kilometers of the surface. So the B330 has 330 uh, cubic meters of interior space around the moon and Bigelow hasn't just been working with ULA they've also spoken to SpaceX to perhaps use their Dragon capsule to bring astronauts to that habitation module um, so really interesting uh, infrastructure might spring up between Blue Origin, ULA, SpaceX and Bigelow to have people taking cargo and people around the moon yeah so the one second the iss has 915 cubic uh meters of a pressurized volume and one bigelow aerospace module has 330 meters uh so three of these modules that are at greatly lower cost than the iss could equal the same interior volume and so you can have your experiments and whatnot in there right and they're they're designed to be modular so in theory you could connect more than one b330 together and they also have a, a longer-term version, uh, much larger, called the BA-2100, which is truly gigantic, and it's 2,100 cubic meters. Uh, so these are very massive uh, inflatable modules compared to the ISS's rather small uh, aluminum modules. Yeah, and while this is interesting and seems to have a decent amount of support, I question why, you know? In the past... Uh, Astronauts have walked on the moon. They've done some great science. That was the Apollo missions were also a great uh, political move. Um, like 
rallying support during the Cold War. But going back to the moon, besides being a novelty, is is there a reasonable business case or science case for going back to the moon? I think so. It's uh, if you look at Bigelow, his his father made his money in in the hotel industry, and so I think a big part of this is trying to create a a place where people can go and stay in some hotel that is cheap enough that they can afford to build it at large scale. And I think that's kind of the biggest purpose of, of this type of system. Yeah, I think the the underlying current that we're seeing with all these proposals is, and this is hinted in the, the Washington Post article, uh, is that the new administration, which has not officially laid out a space policy yet, uh, is looking for, obviously, lunar missions, but things that can be accomplished within four years. So some things that have a very short turnaround time and can be like noticeable, successful milestones. And so a lunar flyby counts as that. Um, but that is, you know, a very tourist-esque kind of mission. If you can actually get a way for humans to spend extended periods in lunar orbit, which is what a Bigelow space station would do, uh, then, you know, you can have, you know, space tourism in the hotel kind of sense, but you can also have researchers and whatnot. Uh, and that would provide a reason for going, right? An economic incentive, uh, which is kind of critical for this. But I mean, I know some countries like GDP is based on tourism, um, but like, would tourism be a strong enough case to only have like hotels around the moon? What else can you do that's important or relevant and worth sending all that mass um, in orbit around the moon? Well, science is one of them. I could see a lot of companies sending scientists or people up there to do research rather than paying NASA to do your research for you. So rather, it would be cheaper than sending experiments to the ISS if you can send it to lunar orbit? Well, well, you could have a dedicated scientist that goes up there or works up there. I mean, this, this is some amount of years in the future. This isn't a four-year type of time frame. But if you can lower the cost enough, you could actually send your own scientists to the ISS rather than putting it through NASA's you know, chain of command in order to get your experiments on the ISS. I think there's huge demand for it. If you look at the astronauts' um, schedules like right now on the ISS, they're booked almost all day. They work, I don't know, 12-hour days. Um, and most of that time is spent doing scientific experiments. And so I suspect there's a lot of scientists here on Earth, me included, that would love the opportunity to go to low Earth orbit and conduct some of their research up there that was important for their companies. Yeah, and one thing to understand is that, you know, Bigelow could launch a space station to Earth low Earth orbit as a replacement or addition to ISS uh, and using Crew Dragon or Starliner transfer people to it at a cheaper cost. Uh, but I definitely think that there has been a kind of hidden directive to think uh, towards the moon, which is why they're proposing having a Bigelow module with a two ACES stages to then go to the moon because everyone's trying to, uh, ideally, Bigelow is not going to pay for it to put it into space uh, and then try to generate revenue. If they can get NASA to pay for it, then they can, you know, you know sell that time to NASA scientists or private scientists. So I think that is something that can be considered is that they're, they're they know or they think that NASA is now becoming more moon-focused and they're presenting a batch of solutions 
for moon-focused missions. And everyone is, and I think SpaceX probably falls privy to that too. They're just trying to get a piece of that pie with the new administration so that they have something and they're not flat on their heels if there's some new announcement that is going to say NASA's focused on just the moon for the next four years or something crazy like that. So with with Blue Origin, um, we haven't seen any sort of development for capsules for their new Glenn rocket, which is their big heavy class rocket. Uh, All we've seen in terms of capsule hardware would be the suborbital um, tourist missions upon New Shepard, which has seen five or so test flights. Um, Would Blue Origin start making capsules and, and do you think they'll be they'll enter the commercial crew space or do you think they'll kind of stay building their rockets, um, stay building engines for, uh, in partnership with ULA, they're a contender to make rockets or to make engines for ULA's new Vulcan, uh, vehicle. So do you think Blue Origin will enter this commercial crew space and deliver stuff to the moon or will stay back just making engines and playing in the, um, the launch business? So I think Blue Origin made a really interesting play uh, where with Blue Moon specifically, uh, from what we've been told and what's been leaked, is that their Blue Moon lander is a modified New Shepard that can land on the moon and deliver cargo. Uh, And again, they are petitioning NASA to create a commercial lunar cargo program to then pay for the development. Um, And so that is kind of a all-around win for Blue Origin. They have a rocket uh, coming up, New Glenn, that can deliver payloads to the moon. Uh, and then looking at that, th- you know, the three-stage version of New Glenn, uh, if that third stage is also the lander, then, like, there you go. Like, you're able to, like, that is a, a moon landing architecture uh, that there is on their roadmap. Uh, we haven't heard any rumors about sending crew to the, to the moon um, from Blue Origin and Building a crew capsule is extremely expensive and a completely different set of challenges compared to building a rocket. And so Blue Origin is trying to tackle the technological challenge of orbital rockets and then lunar landers. Adding crew on top of that is a whole nother set of challenges. I think that's somewhat misleading, though, because Blue Origin is already working on crew-like capabilities with their new Shepard rocket and their ability to take citizens into space and bring them back down to Earth. Like, they care about crew. They're not just looking at only moving cargo, even though this new proposal kind of seems that way. It may just be that this new proposal is the thing they think is most likely to help them with development costs. And they want... I mean, they're part... but They're... So they haven't had uh they don't have a orbital class uh crew capability um or lunar capability mm-hmm. with to carry crew they're making a lift heavy lifter rocket new glenn right. but they're also working with ULA to make uh their BE4 engines for Vulcan but ULA is a launcher they have their Vulcan they have Aces which um intends to uh carry cargo and whatever to between Earth and the Moon, so if are they competing with their partner ULA to get things to the Moon? Well, they've already been doing that. With as soon as they announced New Glenn, that was an indirect competition to the 
Vulcan rocket that they were building the BE-4 engines It doesn't make for. any sense. Like, do, do you think they don't have a direction, or do you think their direction is kind of... I think there's a limited sp like area on the number of things that you can do in this field that are logical. And I think what's happened is Blue Origin initially started out providing engines and doing their own R&D work and looking at these grander ambitions with a longer time frame. But I think what's happened is they've realized, probably partly because of SpaceX's success, that there's going to be a huge market for this kind of stuff soon, like in the next 10-year time frame. And so what they're trying to do is figure out how can they be in the best position to make money off of this huge market shift that's going to happen over the next 10 years. And one of the ways to do that is to get external development on the things that you think you need to be successful. And one of those may be a lunar lander. Maybe they truly believe that the moon is the next piece of the uh, next part of the future, or they just think that this administration is about to dump a ton of money into moon-like missions, and they would like a piece of that pie. Um, I'd like to, to propose another question to you both, and that's we've seen a lot of private companies break into the launcher space, but you do mention, TJ, that developing a capsule is um, the same, if not more complicated than building a rocket to get it into space. Do you think there will be new companies that will arise to develop solely capsules to be integrated with something like New Glenn or um, Bigelow's doing it? But that's more of a habitation. Bigelow doesn't that's not, have a capsule. Sure. They don't have a capsule. Sure, it's a it's a habitation. Yeah. So I think it's Still it's really interesting. Um, now, Augie, you talked about you know their current crew on New Shepard. That capsule, in a lot of ways, is less technically capable than the Mercury capsule. Right, it is a pressure vessel, and it has a landing system. Oh, for sure, it's it's absolutely not ready. I'm just pointing out that they are already working with crew, and Jeff Bezos has publicly stated multiple times that he wants a world where humans are frequently living in in orbit. And so, in order to get to his dream, he's going to have to develop crew capabilities, unless he relies heavily on another. Company. I think it's it's more likely for some kind of partnership with Bigelow, or to just stick with uh, Boeing and SpaceX for the crew capsules. You think Jeff Bezos will pay SpaceX? But then they'll have to use SpaceX's rocket, because as we've seen so far, SpaceX has not come out about launching the Dragon capsule on any other rocket. True, um, but if you look at the Crew Dragon timeline, it's been like almost 10 years from the early like ridiculous prototypes for Dragon to Crew Dragon being functional, and or Cargo Dragon being functional and flying, and now Crew Dragon. Um and so, like, it might take 10 years for Blue Origin to do that. So I think, you know, we might see that in, like, a long, long term for, for Blue Origin. Um, but to go from the, the capsule that's on New Shepard to something that can be in orbit and is as safe as what NASA and what a general marketplace would want for crew is kind of uh, unlikely. I would disagree. I, I don't think it would take Blue Origin the same amount of time that it took SpaceX because Blue Origin has way more money. SpaceX didn't have any money when they started. They really didn't. Bezos could dump tons of funds, and he could use all of the learnings from SpaceX, from the R&D he's been doing for the past decade, and what's happened with the Orion capsule. And from their employees. A lot of Blue Origin employees, engineers, um, have our former SpaceX engineers as well. So Yeah, or NASA engineers, or, or, or even ULA engineers. They're all working there. See, I think a, a better niche for Blue Origin is with the Blue Moon unmanned lander to then go with a manned lander. Um, 
because then you mm-hmm. can you can be a crew capsule agnostic. You can use Orion, you can use Starliner, or you can use Crew Dragon to do re-entry and uh, launch. And then you can use either a habitat module that you build or use Bigelow or even that module. And then Blue Origin can be the one that is going from low lunar orbit down to the surface and then back. And also their Hydrolox architecture, which is what New Shepard uses, uh, is the easiest architecture to do ISRU on the moon with because you can extract water and then break it down from lunar regolith. Uh, so I would I would see, like, again, we're talking about not things that are happening in the next five years, but the next ten years, a uh, manned lunar lander by Blue Origin that's based on the BE-3, based on New Shepard, um, because that's a, a very well, different kind of architecture and, like, st- structural challenge to build a uh, vacuum lunar lander compared to a Earth re-entry vehicle. Well, the cargo version is the first step there. I mean, as we've seen with SpaceX, they developed Cargo Dragon long before they developed Crew Dragon. And so Bezos is, right now, if you look at his white paper, he's planning on July 2020 as being the, the first mission, potentially, the earliest date that they could have a, a man, or not a man, but a, a cargo lander on the moon. And so if you extend that out with more development time for crew, I think it could definitely fall within your within your timeline, TJ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, I know we kind of addressed this earlier that that is again more competition with ULA. Uh, obviously, ASIS is their uh, part of their Cislunar One Thousand uh, program, uh, but the Zeus lander, which uses an ASIS uh, stage with vertical landing and uh, legs to land on the moon. Uh, a blue moon, blue origin lander would be a direct competitor with Zeus. Uh, so it looks like blue origin is uh, partnering, but also competing with ULA at every kind of uh, market. Yeah, which, which is, is really strange and really think about it. Really something. Yeah, and I think a lot of people have been predicting um, for a long time that for this sort of space economy um, to develop there would have to be a lot of partners and competition both competing and working with each other um, to make this whole ecosystem work. And it's really inspiring to see it all come together. We're talking about these things seriously. Yes, we're speculating, but they're not really wild speculations. Um, and it's just incredible to have that <laughs> to have that conversation in my lifetime. Okay, so one thing that isn't really clear about um, the Grey Dragon mission from the bits and pieces we have from Elon's conference call is just how far uh, Grey Dragon will go. So Elon did say, uh, we have the tr- from the transcript, um, that Grey Dragon will be 400,000 mi- 400, miles in altitude, um, but the traditional, what you would expect for a lunar flyby would be more like 400,000 kilometers. So the conversion from miles to kilometers is a pretty significant one, right? So how do we know whether he misspoke or whether they actually intend to send humans twice, what, twice the distance um, between the Earth and the Moon? Yeah, so the easy explanation for this is that uh, Elon misspoke or the person transcribing uh, had an error uh, because 440,000 Kilometers is roughly what Apollo 8 did when it flew around the moon. Uh, However, in the official press release that SpaceX put on their website, uh, they state that they will, the astronauts will travel faster and further into the solar system 
than any before them. Uh, now, in order to achieve both of those goals, that would point to a 400,000 mile uh, trajectory. Although, you know, if they carefully just did like, you know, 10,000 extra kilometers more than Apollo 8, that would also count. Um, but that's an interesting kind of question is, will SpaceX not only send people to the moon, uh, return people to the moon for the first time since Apollo, but will they do a high energy orbit to test something like a Mars re-entry? And do you, is that difference significant in terms of um, testing their hardware for a simulated Mars re-entry um, coming in a faster velocity is, you know, um, as one would expect coming back from Mars, um, more strenuous on the heat shield, etc. Um, and would that bring in different challenges or more, more challenges in terms of bringing crew that far away from Earth? Well, the thing is, is that it's roughly twice the, the orbital distance of the moon. Uh, but it's not twice the energy. So it is much more energy, uh, but it's not twice the energy. So you are going to get uh, a faster re-entry speed, which is be closer to what you would get returning from Mars. You'll be able to test the heat shield and that kind of thing. So those are all benefits that tie into testing for Red Dragon, uh, which I definitely think people in SpaceX are thinking of ways to have this be a development mission for a Red Dragon mission. Um, the other thing is that by going uh, far past the moon, you can then test uh, deep space maneuvers. So you have to do very fine, small adjustments uh, for your trajectory when you're in deep space so that you you know, hit Mars at the right angle uh, after traveling for three months or six months. Uh, and so this would be another opportunity to test that uh, and test the Draco thrusters. Um, so if they were to um, go to a 400,000 mile orbital radius um would they be far enough out to where a maneuver with a super draco having less delta v would have a more significant impact as far as maneuvers go i mean exactly um i wouldn't i don't think they're going to use the super dracos uh those are kind of overpowered for this kind of thing uh but you could do like a one meter per second or a half meter per second change uh in your velocity and for example land on at Kennedy Space Center versus landing in California. Um, such a small maneuver that far away from Earth can have a really big effect on that. Uh, but aside from the mission profile, um, not many modifications would be need would be necessary for a Dragon capsule to do a Gray Dragon Gray Dragon mission. So, yeah, you you pull out the seats, you throw some beef jerky in there, and they're <laughs> off. Yeah, it's uh, basically like. Almost all of the modifications you need for Red Dragon are going to have to be done for Gray Dragon. So I definitely think that's like one of the key reasons this became like an attractive option for SpaceX, because they have to do deep space communication, they have to do deep space navigation, uh, and then they have to test the heat shield um, in a different environment. Do you think they can use the trunk for for more uh, scientific payload space, like they would for Red Dragon, on this lunar flyby? That's definitely a possibility. Um, so with EM-1, there's going to be loads of lunar CubeSats. But with EM-1, Orion is going to go to the moon and then put itself into orbit. And so when it releases those CubeSats, they will stay in lunar orbit. Any CubeSats or things like that that get jettisoned out of the trunk are going to fly past the moon and then back into Earth within you know, a few days. 
Yeah, plus there's that timeline issue again. For EM-1 payload, they've had years to develop. And uh, Grey Dragon mission, maybe two years, a year and a half, a year. Well, I could definitely see, you know, either additional, like, consumables, like oxygen or, or something like that in the trunk. Uh, they get then rooted into the main capsule, or they have different sensors like telescopes or things like that in the trunk to observe the moon, uh, and definitely communications equipment, so like bigger antennas or different things like that. Too. Thanks for listening to this episode of SpexCast. To continue this discussion or start one of your own, send us a message on Twitter at RITSpecs, Facebook at facebook.com slash RITSpecs, or by email at specscast at gmail.com. Our music is provided by Nelson Scott. You can find more of his music at thenelsonscott.com. If you enjoyed listening to this show, don't forget to give us a review on your podcast platform of choice. We are available on iTunes, Google Play Music, and anywhere else via our RSS feed. Thanks for subscribing, and we'll see you next week.